Welcome to the Paradise Paradox. So today we're talking about Syria, the situation in Syria, particularly focusing on the Islamic State or ISIS. So there tends to be this conception uh, among a lot of people that ISIS is actually controlled by the US government, either by the CIA or some other military agency or, or intelligence agency. Uh, and as our guest Ishmam Ahmed has found out uh, through his many months of research on the subject, uh, that's entirely false. Um, the uh, ISIS actually receives no support whatever from the US government. Uh, and so Ishmam is going to present the case and show us how, how that came about, uh, how ISIS came about uh, from Al-Qaeda, Iraq, and also the present state of the, the Assad regime, which influences that area, and also about the present state of uh, the Islamic State as a de facto government in that area. And uh, we'll also talk about some other groups in the area, uh, such as the, the Free Syria Army, which is hopefully working for peace and freedom, freedom from Assad and freedom from ISIS for people in the area. So let's get into it. Here with uh, with with my buddy Ishmam Ahmed, and he's been following the the situation in Syria with uh, with ISIS for a while, and, and uh, researching a lot of articles. Uh, now, there's uh, there's this perception uh, that the U.S. arms the the Islamic State, or they arm ISIS, um, and all of your research indicates that that this perception is entirely false. Is that accurate? Yep, that is quite accurate indeed. How did ISIS come to exist in its present form? All right, so if we go all the way back to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, when it, when the organization called Al-Qaeda in Iraq arose, and that's how it started originally. And from there on in, due to changes in personnel, due to changes in the struggles of that organization, it came to mutate until the opportunities of the Syrian civil war gave the opportunity to expand a new base from which to finally establish a dictatorship, essentially. So uh, what was it about the, the changing situation which gave them the opportunity to expand? All right. So because you see, like, by around 2010, um, IS was pretty much on the back foot. or It was called ISI back then. It was on the back foot. They were underground pretty much. But then the Syrian civil war it weakened the, the, the monopoly of power in eastern Syria, and that gave opportunity for IS to move from Iraq and expand into Syria. And from there, it gave them a stable base in which to organize their plots, pretty much. What was the political climate uh, when al-Qaeda Iraq started? What, what were the, uh, the political factors which, which gave rise to the all right, so in the context of U.S. occupation, it was disproportionately targeted against Arab Sunnis in Iraq. And besides just the U.S. military, there was also the Iraqi government or the Iraqi puppet governments 
who were led by sectarian Shiite politicians who were quite like who were more interested in you know revanchist um, policies against Sunni Arabs rather than working towards you know genuine democracy. Why were people so prejudiced or or uh, out for vengeance against the Sunni Arabs? It, well, like it's this like tendency towards collective guilt, pretty much, which too many statists have, pretty much. You know, like instead of re- recognizing that it was a ruling class that should be blamed for the, their atrocities, they end up blaming whatever demographic group the ruling class comes from. So in this case, Saddam Hussein, he was a Sunni Arab and his fellow elites were disproportionately Sunni Arabs. Years later, they were still blaming uh, Sunni Arabs for what Saddam Hussein had done. Pretty much. The transformation from uh, Al-Qaeda Iraq to to the Islamic State, is it the same organization with a different name or is it is it really something distinct? Well, I guess you can say it pretty much just a change of name, but I guess mm-hmm. it's worth pointing out why they decided to make these changes in their names. So one of them is to emphasize the fact that they really did operate independently of bin Laden's original parent organization. That's one reason. And pretty much to emphasize the fact that their focus or their base was in Iraq. So that's why they changed from like what Al-Qaeda to um, ISI or Islamic State in Iraq. So they were deliberately separating themselves from the parent organization. Yeah. Uh, and saying, yeah, we're something distinct and something different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but in terms of the the structure of the organization, it's quite similar. All right, so um, I guess one difference worth noting is that the organization assimilated or hired many Ba'athist officers who who served under Saddam Hussein and hired them as military strategists amongst the leadership. So, yeah, that's also worth noting. For ISI, so uh, sorry. What's a, a, a Bathus is a is a, a, a racial group or no? A, no, the Bathus, the Bath. It, it refers to the Bath Party that Saddam Hussein ran. Uh-huh. Uh, so the, they decided to recruit to recruit what was what were once their enemies. Um. Yeah. yeah like formerly under Saddam Hussein, they had contempt for Al Qaeda, pretty much, and mm. you know these Islamist types, but. I guess, you know, when you're dealing with the U.S. occupation, former foes can, you know, come together with against, like, their common enemy, the U.S. In our conversations before, you mentioned that um, when when Al-Qaeda Iraq had to cut, uh, decided to cut its ties from Al-Qaeda, uh, then they, they had reduced support and then they supported themselves through organized crime. Can you tell us a bit about that? All right, so some examples of, organized criminal activity they engaged in in order to survive their low period included like protection rackets, uh, kidnapping for ransom, and uh, fencing off stolen goods or chop shop operations, those sort of activities essentially. What about narcotics? They didn't really deal in narcotics? Um, I have to look that up. I'm pretty sure they would have done to some extent, like, and I'm pretty sure they would have got some, you know, ridiculous justification, religious justification, or at least, you know, why it's okay for them to do it, but not others, but, yeah. Mm. Mm. But uh, otherwise, those activities I mentioned tend to be the biggest contributors. So it, it makes me think about the, the, the situation in Colombia where you have these paramilitaries and guerrilla groups. Uh, they started off with 
something of a noble goal, like they were fighting for the liberation. Um, a lot of the times it was like farmers who became radicalized because their, their land was stolen by the state or something like that. Uh, but of, over time, they they started to intimidate farmers themselves and tell them you're going to go uh, cocaine for us or or this type of thing. So they became criminals uh, after time. Uh, do you think that th- that that situation is uh, comparable? Um, I guess somewhat, but you have to I guess differentiate between the original leaders of the organization versus like recruits who joined after the occupation, like during the occupation. So the leadership, they always had these um, brutalist goals, these, you know, desire to impose their own state, their own version of a state. But for the, say, recruits, you know, it was more like, you know, say they were were victimized under the U.S. occupation, in which case Mm. that drove them to join the group okay so you have the the people at the top who are power hungry and then down below you have the the pawns who are willing to fight for them because they they think some good will come of it yeah Mm. okay very interesting uh so some of the documents you 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 sent to me um indicated that there's quite widespread torture by the by Assad's current regime in Syria yeah, can you tell me a bit about that? Okay, yeah. So, of course, Assad was always fond of torture, but it really escalated during the Arab Spring protests in Syria. So, like peaceful protesters just being dragooned off into like pretty much dungeons to be, to, and they'll they have to endure things like beatings, being strung up, uh, deprivation, including sleep deprivation. In, Having been forced to witness acts of torture themselves against other prisoners, um, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, naturally. Yeah, well, I I remember reading one case where the 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 fellow was um, they they asked him, "Is anybody from this town?" Uh, I think he was a nurse or something, and so he he put up his hand, and they said, "Okay, come with us." And they then he found his cousin waiting in the room, and they forced him to torture his own cousin. Absolutely sadistic, indeed. What other um, things, other, other than torture, are there other terrible examples of things that the Assad regime has done? Uh, yeah, so, so shooting of peaceful protesters, that's what happened during the peace, before the armed resistance against his regime. That was one of his massive crimes. Another massive crime ever since uh, armed resistance broke out was uh, mass bombings in civilian areas. So without any regard for civilians, just disproportionate and indiscriminate bombings from the air. Mm. Mm. And it's probably the biggest killer in in Syria. Okay, that's that's quite terrible. So how do how do those acts affect radicalization? All right. So I guess it's worth pointing out that despite all that atrocities, most Syrian rebels have not become radicalized. But saying that, like, there will always be this minority that can easily easily be recruited by brutalist organizations because of those horrible experiences. And so, despite the hypocrisy of IS, they also, you know, easily use Assad's crimes as a recruiting tool. So the the perception of Assad in the West sometimes it isn't as uh, critical as as it probably should be. Um, say, for example, in the the, the anti-war left, um, uh, 
Why isn't the West as, as critical of Assad as it should be? All right. So wait, when, when you mean the West, you mean Western governments or Western anti-war activists? Uh, okay. So, so I guess it's more uh, among anti-war activists. Okay. Um, but if, if you have some thoughts on Western governments, that's interesting too. Okay. Then. So for Western uh, anti-war activists, they, they tend to be driven by this motivate, like thoughts about anti-imperialism, just the alleged uh, idea that Assad is a hero of, of anti-imperialism, a resistor of the Syrian nation against uh, U.S. imperialism. And that's like problematic in many ways. One, because it's not true. And two, because even if it was true, you know, you know it, people have the right to resist their oppressors. So because, because um, Assad is anti-U.S. imperialism, that, that gives people the, the idea that he's a good guy. Yeah. And then they kind of give him a free pass or they don't look at, at the Nazi Absolutely. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And like, as I mentioned, it's not true anyway in the first place. So mm -hmm. uh, I sh so two examples we can point out is during 2001 to 2003, he collaborated with the CIA in their extraordinary rendition program. So the CIA would like find all these uh, suspects who, who on the most dubious evidence were just arrested and then they'll be shipped over to other countries. So in this case, Syria and their Syrian agents would just beat the hell out or torture those poor suspects. And a, a prominent like victim of this is a guy by the name of Meher Arar. Mm. You wonder, uh, like, do you think audience will, would like to know the spelling or they can hear it fine. Uh, we'll put we'll put it in the in the notes. But what what happened to to RR? Uh, so it's just like the U U.S. government pretty much shipped him over. Like I forgot whereabouts he was arrested, but he was back in like 2002, and and then that poor fella sent over to Syria, put into a very small cell, and would endure beatings and electrocutions for many for like many hours a day. And it happened for, for a few, like quite a while, and, but thankfully the Syrian agents, after all that horrible things they did, decided, yeah, he's innocent, and it's like whatever, sent him back to where he to to Canada, where his, his home was. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Syrian government, like I guess, was like nice of them to acknowledge he was innocent, and the Canadian government as well. But the U.S. government never acknowledged his innocence whatsoever. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. Or at least they never acknowledged any of their own wrongdoing. So you you described uh, IS as currently being as a sort of dictatorship. Can you can you tell us a bit more what the what the condition of is um, uh, like before you in a conversation before you described it as a as a de facto state? Yeah. Uh, can you go into a bit more detail about that? Oh uh, yeah. So. I guess ever since they started seizing large swathes of territory in Syria, they're establishing their own monopoly of power. They they weren't like tolerating the existence of um, uh, local activists, no autonomy whatsoever. They totally quashed um, like local people's councils. Like when I say local council, don't confuse it with like our governments. Can it's more like cooperative like organizations. Yeah, and they totally crushed them and then totally imposed their own laws. 
So, like, laws against smoking, laws against women being uncovered, all that sort of non, all the, all sorts of unjust laws. And they have imposed taxes, pretty much, uh, asset forfeiture, if you want to call it that, as well. <laughs> yeah, and conscription. It's like, what non-government entity can conscript tens of thousands of people? Yep, yep. So they are quite well established as a state. Yeah. So in regards to Israel, so Israel is, is one of the U.S.'s greatest allies in the region and probably the greatest ally in the world. Um, so it, Israel has, has its own interest in, in protecting itself, I assume. Uh, what is, from Israel's perspective, what is the best case scenario uh, for what's happening there in Syria and Iraq? Yeah, for Israel, it would just be wishing for the war to continue on and on and on so that Basically, the, the rebels can never become a potent anti-Zionist force, and so that, um, so that, in the event of an Assad victory, he'll, he'll be they'll be dealing with a weaker Assad, and who, and therefore they can have much greater influence in the Middle Eastern region. Hmm. So there, there must be some, there must be a strong anti-Zionist sentiment that exists there. Um, in Syria, yeah, especially amongst like the rebels. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also, in despite Assad's you know like rhetoric, he he's, that's not where his interest is. His interest is in ruling over his own people, not in you know helping out the Palestinian people. We had this um, this tweet from uh, the human rights activist and and uh, Arab Spring commentator Iyad al Baghdadi, uh, and he's got this note here, March twenty third two thousand eleven, regime already describes peaceful protests referred to as a case as a foreign conspiracy carried out by al-Qaeda. Uh, so uh, Assad is, is accusing these peaceful protesters of being um, terrorists, basically. Uh, how, how common would, is that propaganda technique? Yeah, it's quite common. Um, for example, Gaddafi used that technique as well, claiming that protesters are agents of al-Qaeda. Um, yeah, and and for example, and in Egypt, like accusing all protesters of somehow being like under Mubarak, accusing protesters of being, you know, uh, agents of the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood. They're not terrorists, but yeah, it, they they've defamed as terrorists in Egypt, and it's so it's easy to just smear them as Muslim Brotherhood people. Mm-hmm. And how how do you think that kind of propaganda affects the public perception? In Syria and Iraq, like the most people would would people buy that, or they just they dismiss it as the the state trying to manipulate. Yeah, I guess it varies amongst class. So if we're talking about pro regime people, like especially those who constantly watch like state media, particularly from military families or amongst the politically connected, you know, wealthy people, they tend to be the types who just happily you know swallow the whole propaganda. But if you're talking about, say, lower-class people who who endure oppression and are especially connected to the areas that are under heavy protest, they obviously know it's baloney. Okay. Well, we had another. I had another quote here from uh, Baghdadi. Uh, he's he's written the the Syrian catastrophe was very preventable if the world's red line was killing protesters rather than drowned refugee toddlers. Uh, do you have some thoughts on that? Oh uh, yeah. So. Um, from my interpretation of like his general views, it, it's more like a case of the world should have been caring about what was happening from the get-go rather than like you know an advocation for military 
intervention. I'd say that, um, you know, you, you don't need military intervention. You shouldn't support military intervention anyway. But the point is, things could have been much better if people around the world started were more were sympathetic, were trying to understand what's going on, and tried to find ways of helping the Syrian people since 2011, rather than starting like 2015. So there, there are many cases where the, the CIA, uh, for example, has, has deliberately disrupted governments to overthrow them and try to install uh, puppet dictators. Uh, what was the extent of the US involvement in the Arab Spring? All right, so I'd say you can, there are four different categories of how the US interacted during the Arab Spring. So say amongst strong allies, allies that, weren't, that, were, that have maintained their uh, stranglehold on power throughout the protests, the US just main, maintained the status quo, just continuing delivering weapons, maintained friendly diplomatic relationships, not saying any critical words during that period. Uh, and in other cases, like say amongst more more wavering allies, like allies in which the dictatorship was like sh on shaking ground, uh, the U.S. government would make tepid criticisms, belated, uh, uh, like criticisms that were too late and too little too late, pretty much. And it's also worth noting that was pretty much the case with Assad, even though Assad is not a close ally of the U.S. It's more a, he's more a neutral dictatorship. Nevertheless. He also, it was also the same response from the U.S. to him. It's like belated and uh, and tepid criticisms of Assad. Um, mm. And uh, another category would be where, like, so say amongst allies, like in Yemen, if the dictatorship was on weak on weak grounds, that they would try to get the head dictator to step down to preserve the rest of the government. That was another form of strategy, pretty much. And the fourth uh, case would be Libya. But it, Libya is an exceptional case in the Arab Spring because uh, in, the, in the case of Libya, a huge portion of the military and political elite defected to the rebels. So in the case of Libya, that's why they were, the NATO was willing to send uh, aircraft and military aid to help out the rebels. We had this uh, the, this quote from um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the, the political scientist and, and former uh, counsel of, of uh, U.S. presidents, uh, and he, he made this statement, uh, which many people interpreted as, as saying that ISIS is actually a, a U.S. asset, um, because when Russia attacked Syria, um, he said that they're putting at risk these U.S. assets. Uh, what assets uh, do you think he was talking about? Um, yeah, I would say that he was he had the FSA units in mind. Yeah, but the unfortunate fact is that he's also creating his own myth, uh, like another myth or contributing to another myth that the FSA is somehow like agents of U.S. of the of U.S. intervention or or that they're beneficiaries of U.S. military aid. And it's like, yeah, it, it's a deplorable contribution because, like, it's totally not true. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the the FSA doesn't receive any support from the U.S. government. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but like, but it's worth wondering, like, what, how does this myth keep coming about? So we know that like there will be many American-made weapons in FSA hands. So where did it come from? Did it come from the U.S. directly? 
No, but it did come from the countries Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Uh, and then um, there, there is actually there, there is a, a U.S. asset in in Syria, which is a hundred rebels, which have been trained by the U.S. Um, they were trained in the condition that they don't attack Assad. Uh, uh, what role do they play? Um, do do they have any significant role, considering they're so small in number? Yeah, they're not really that significant because uh, once, for example, once they crossed into Syria, uh, the Nusra Front organization, who's like, who, who the US is really like focused against, they, they pretty much subdued those rebels and, you know, forced them to hand over the weapons. So it was like, they didn't have enough firepower to deal with um, Nusra's uh, opposition pretty much. So even before they could start fighting IS, like the Nusra Front, you know, put a stop to their, put a stop to that force. Um, so why why did, were those um, 100 rebels told that they can't attack Assad if um, if if Assad is supposed to be against uh, U.S. imperialism? Uh, yeah. So well, you have to remember that from 2009 onwards, uh, the U.S. and Syria were entering this sort of détente or try or re, re, or mending ties essentially. So you have to remember by that point they were no longer the the hard foes that they were during the Bush years, during the Bush era. Yeah, like you were saying before, it's in the um, when it comes to Assad, uh, the U.S. is is kind of indifferent. They would rather just leave him alone. Uh, and just just let him do do his thing. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that is generally the case. Of course, if like they're fearful that he's on shaky grounds, like his his crackdown is empowering the re- revolution, the Syrian revolution, then they might offer some tepid criticism. It's like, oh, you're being too disproportionate. You should try being more reasonable. They might say that sort of thing, but it doesn't go beyond words, essentially. With these rebels, like they were, the 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 U.S. was there, or in in some capacity, and they were offering this training. Um, if if the militants or the or the rebels there were so keen to um, usurp uh, Assad, uh, why wouldn't they just accept the training and then um, then leave and go off and do their own thing? Yeah, you have to remember that uh, it, this pro- training program was heavily bureaucratized, like so much paperwork, so much uh, layers of vetting. Like with the, that many layers of vetting was like there's no way you could get even a thousand people within within like a year or two years to get to pass through the program. So hence, even if rebels were willing to make that sort of deal, they wouldn't have the opportunity. Yep, yep. So they had to go through background checks and... and get references from 10 relatives or something weird like that. Yeah. Yep. So you did say it was it, it was in the millions of dollars that they spend on this program and, and yeah, 100 like rebels. So it would easily have been like $1.5 million per rebel if it's like <laughs> on that calculation. Right. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the these um, these articles about the, the situation in Syria um, and, and ISIS uh, seem to speak very favorable uh, very favorably of the Free Syrian Army. Uh, what are the good and bad aspects of the of the FSA? So the FSA in general, like it's a, 
It helps. It is a genuine defender of communities against the Assad regime, as well as IS, who are, who I prefer calling the Bakar al Baghdadi regime to emphasise that it's they're pretty much a dictatorship like Assad. Yeah, uh, and and um, besides protecting against these two dictatorships, they also uh, recognise and and to- and um, abide by the wishes of the local councils, or which we call the local coordinating committees. Okay, yeah. okay. So they, they they definitely have some respect for the law and, and for peace and order. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I guess if you but if you want to be critical, like um, you can criticize them, say like like with issues of corruption, like that is a important issue. Uh, although it's like they're good outweighs the bad, and the bad that they do is far far less than in say under Assad. Nevertheless, you know, it, it is a legitimate target of criticism. Being a Muslim, can you tell me um, some of the things that ISIS does uh, which are contrary to the Quran? Yeah, so imposing cruel and unusual punishments. Like, it's as a Muslim, you, like, one should emphasize restitution. One should, like, that's what one should aim for, not, like, imposing cruel and unusual punishments. So, for example, chopping the hands of thieves. That is, like, absolutely disproportionate to the crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but for, like even worse uh, crimes under uh, under IS would be like like imposing crucifixion amongst like yeah, supposed traitors. That's one example and another case would be uh yeah, the imposition of sex slavery amongst uh, this mi- women from this minority religious group called the Yazidi. How would they try to to justify that uh, from in a religious sense, or do they just do it and and then, or it's, you know, they say it's for for God or or something bizarre like that? Yeah, yeah, they would they try to find religious like scriptural support for it, like support from the scriptures. So they might like, but the issue tends to be that they like okay, so we have to separate out two different categories of scripture. So there's the Quran itself, and then there is these texts called the Hadith. So it means the sayings of the Prophet. Yeah, um, when it comes to the Hadith, the problem is they rely too often on unreli- historically unreliable um, portions of the Hadith. And that's what, like, it's easy to, you know, pick and choose when it comes to unreliable, like those unreliable texts. You can easily ignore the less brutal versions and just choose the more brutal like uh, narratives, even if there, you know, there's no historical like, like reliability to those narratives whatsoever. Uh, in the case of the Quran, it's the issue tends to be like mistranslation and misinterpretation. So, so it's like, for example, the whole issue of like cutting off the hand. It's like, why do you have to translate it as literally cutting off the hand? Can't you translate it as marking the hand? Like that's a legitimate translation or like interpretation to mark the hand or to cut off means of committing robbery i always have uh, have some trouble trying to figure this out in my in my head because uh just about every muslim that i've met is is an exceptionally kind person uh and so when people um say that that it's actually you know responsible for all, for all this murder or something like that i do I, I do have to question this contradiction yeah absolutely like I would say that what makes IS different from an ordinary Muslim is statism. That's 
that's the key ingredient, like all statism to an extreme degree, yep. like a desire to impose your views or your version of things upon others. Whereas other ordinary Muslims, even if they, uh, you know, they, they're not going to be anarchists, but nevertheless, as, as ordinary human beings, they realize that, you know, like they realize that to some extent volunteerism is how things must be. So when you say statism there, you mean like authoritarianism, supporting a government, supporting ruling uh, a ruling class, one per, one person or one group of people uh, ruling over another. Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I know as as a result of this this uh, interview, we might get some criticism and we might be accused of being a U.S. government agents <laughs> or COINTEL Pro or so, or something like that. Uh, do you have any response to that? Yeah. Yeah. So. It's like, first of all, like, deal with the facts. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think I am. If the facts, if the facts say that IS is not an aid, is not an asset of the U.S. government, then that's the fact. And like, I guess it's also worth pointing out. Um, so another fact in the Syrian civil war is the PYD. They're the Kurds in the north. So they get, they have received massive amounts of U.S. aid. It's like, it's like, ask them. Do do. They think that their their American allies or their American helpers are, are helping their enemies. It's like you must be a fool to think like that they're naive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I guess another thing p- worth pointing out is like like people who think that the U.S. is helping the FSA. It's like tell that to the FSA. They've been bombed quite a few times by the U.S. government itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember reading one of those documents you sent me and some and and someone brought that up with an FSA member and he was like, "Well, if only Allah would would wish that." <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, um just because you're pointing out the fact that that ISIS uh isn't supported by the US government doesn't mean in in any sense that that you're actually um supportive of US imperialism or war or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's n- none of, like, yeah, we should reject this false dilemma, logical fallacy, pretty much. There is a lot, a, a lot of nuance there, and and you know, people uh, like if, even I, sh- I shared this meme on Facebook, and I thought, oh yeah, um, ISIS belongs to the U.S. And you pointed out that 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 was false, uh, and started to educate me on the matter. Um, yeah. So the thing is, the the truth is not a meme, and you can't condense uh, this this complex history and this this complex socio political military situation down to just a few sentences on Facebook. It doesn't really work. There's so so many factors uh, involved there. Um, did you have any final notes? Anything else you wanted to say? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's like don't don't let your preconceptions or to, uh, like make the uh, facts fit your theory. Rather, see what the facts are. Don't be scared of the facts. Even if it takes a while, like, just slowly work through it and let the facts shape your shape your understanding of the, what's really going on in Syria and what's really going on in Iraq. Great. Yeah, so we'll put a lot, a lot of articles in the in the show notes there and people can look at the evidence for themselves and, and, and confirm that what you're saying is accurate. Uh, Thanks so much, Ishmam. Uh, Thanks for enlightening us on the subject. Thank you too, Kurt. See you, buddy. See ya.